0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we're asking the question, is Starfleet actually a military? We're talking about the ethics of militaries in space and how it comes up in science fiction and why so often the military is given powers that probably shouldn't be a military or a non-military group actually is armed to the teeth. We're gonna get into this all with a uh, regular guest, Rob McKenzie. All that more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. My name is Matthew. I'm your host. Rob has been a frequent guest on this podcast, and I'm also happy to say that pretty soon, after years of talking to him about Star Wars, he's also going to come on the Star Wars podcast. So my apologies to Ruth that I'm taking up so much of your time over the next couple of weeks, but uh, glad to have you with us.
1: Oh, it's no problem at all. I'm always really glad to record podcasts, and it's, awesome. it's a cheaper and more fun th- Waste of time than a lot of my other past <laughs> is So this is true. This
0: is true. Well, and I've certainly heard from a number of the spouses of my uh, guests as well as my own that, wait a minute, that means they're not going to talk my ear off about their crazy theories. Great, go have fun. So <laughs> everybody
1: wins. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And so this was a topic that you came up with, and it, it's one that I'm really glad you brought up because every time I, I've been recently watching rewatching all of Star Trek with one of my other partners, Abby. And the question of, you know, we keep having these episodes where Picard or someone like that will say, oh, but Starfleet's not a military. And we always are sort of raising our eyebrows like, really? Um, and, and so I was so excited when you got – when you started mentioning the topic. So why don't you talk a little bit about like what got you into this topic and what kind of – how you sort of see it broadly.
1: So I've been rereading I, – I just plugged through because there was a new book in the Lost Fleet series by mm-hmm. uh, John Henry. Uh, or John, and he writes as Jack Campbell for that series. He's an author that was a lieutenant, uh, naval lieutenant commander. Uh, he's mm-hmm. retired from the navy, and he writes basically primarily military science fiction. He has one basically fantasy romance-ish series, which is reasonable. Right. But he he writes what he knows, which is running, uh, running a military fleet. Right. Yeah. And so his his lost fleet series and his Paul Sinclair series and the Genesis fleet are all are all very much modeled on earth, naval militaries. Mm -hmm. And he has characters that, that are professional military officers and think and act like professional military officers, which is when you compare it to a lot of other military science fiction where the authors have never served, they, feels very different. Right. And I you you said, Hey, do you have a topic idea? And I'm like, Yeah, it's really weird that like Henry writes these deep philosophical like how the use of force in the military books are as a military person and we have a whole series nominally Starfleet based where they only very loosely wrestle with a lot of this stuff a lot of the time.
0: Right. Yeah, and I think that was a lot of Roddenberry's idea and I my understanding from having read some histories about Star Trek is that it, to some extent, it started with the kind of, you know, the trouble that you get into, that, that Roddenberry didn't want military stuff at all, to some extent, but, you know, you're trying to get a TV show about space in, you know, network television, people are like, all right, cool, Well, give us some spaceships fighting each other, but yeah. certainly it, you know, whether it was intended or not, it got very baked in, and yeah, I think with the... It's a huge issue with Starfleet, but I think in so many of the TV shows and movies, and also some of the books, this question of you know is this thing really a military or not, or if it's officially a military, why what? is the military doing your first contact situations right. or your space exploration situations? And I think uh, even in my one of my favorite shows, Babylon Five, that I often talk about, right. they're very clear it's a military and there's separate like exploration things, but when they start this you know, a station that is meant to be the house of diplomacy, they give it to the military to run. Yeah. So, like, these kind of issues come up all the time.
1: Yeah, and so, like, Stargate ran for 10 seasons, right? And then it spun off multiple shows, right? So there's Stargate Atlantis and Stargate Universe, and the entirety of Stargate is Stargate SG-1 is the technical name of the first Stargate series, and SG-1 refers to the military unit that they send through for first contacts. Right. Right? And that's that's very weird right like you have a ground forces troop that is going out and making first contact with aliens and why it like it, it, I mean that ends up that's the way it's been historically in a lot of ways right. um, one thing that I that I mentioned on one of our bullet points later it, when you talk about communication is that that's how things were things were run without communication from home right in the age of exploration right and so they would send out ships that had an amount of military capability uh captain cook was a british naval officer right and mm-hmm. he did a lot of exploration and that was organized as a military as a military force with some science on the side in a lot of ways right. for all of his voyages and so it, like this has historical precedent but it, i mean it's been done the other way as well to, like the it, columbus wasn't really a military expedition um magellan wasn't a mili- it wasn't really a military expedition Right? Right. In yeah.
0: And, and I think it's fascinating because, I'm glad you brought up those examples because, I mean, this is the case with Magellan and Columbus as well, but especially with ones where it is a military force being sent out to explore. You know, one of the reasons is because they're not seeing the people who they might meet as, you know, equals or peers with whom they want a diplomatic relationship. It's, you know, the the savages or whatever the heck they're talking about. And so it's fascinating to me that, With something like Stargate, Stargate, for example, where in theory they are looking for allies, they are wanting to have peaceful relationships, they are wanting to not just like conquer all these places and you know get rid of what they see as like lower life forms. They want to you know connect with the rest of the universe, and yet still it's the military being sent out.
1: Right, and then you end up looking at it through a lens of enemies and allies a lot of the time. So the Old Man's War series by John Scalzi deals with this because. He wanted. To, he basically wanted to write his own version of Starship Troopers, which is another piece of classic military science fiction. And uh, I mean, that's a really simplification of his reasons for wanting to write this book. But uh, he wrote the Old Man's War series, and he he wrestles with this because the the military is like, well, we we control all space travel right. in a way, and so everything is kind of under the thumb of the military and in a a quietly oppressive human government, and they they seek out enemies and allies constantly and they're in constant fights with all they're like, everybody's hostile to humans. And then you find out later when you actually talk with aliens, they're like, so humans picked fights with everybody. Yeah. We, we have, we have like a, like a council, a diplomatic council where we actually organize like an alliance between hundreds of alien species and humans elected to stay out so they could fight more. And you're like, why is that? Well, it's because the military wants control and power and so the, it's the natural human, it's um, Pornell's iron law of bureaucracy at work, right? which is a, like there's two groups of people in any bureaucracy. And one of them is the people that do the job that the bureaucracy is organized for. And one group is the people that organize the bureaucracy. And eventually the people who run and organize the bureaucracy gain power and start pushing the, pushing the bureaucracy for its own ends instead of, mm-hmm. instead of yeah. the ends that, the, that it was organized for.
0: As someone who spent 20 years working in the nonprofit sector, I can 100% agree. This yep. is exactly what happened. Right. You know? I, I, I mean,
1: this this is, it, 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 it sounds right because you see it all the time in all sorts of places. Right. Yeah. And
0: I, yeah. I mean, it's funny because it's it's. I can actually draw a perfect example from that because in the this probably happens in a lot of places, but in the nonprofit world, especially in funding, we often talk about in development. We often talk about the concept of mission drift, yep. which is where you start with a specific mission. But then you find a funder who will give you a huge amount of money if you kind of, you know, do something tangential to your mission but a little off to the side and then a little more off to the side. And I think that's one of the things that can happen really in, in the shows we're talking about where, you know, when it's, when it's a military or, you know, whoever even if it is, if it's if – it's, you know, you're sending out anthropologist scientists to go look at a planet. The planet might have an incredible mineral that has never been seen on Earth that would be fascinating – but they're anthropologists. They're going to look yeah. for the the natives to to study. You know, it's right. Uh, the people are going to look for what they're trained to to look for.
1: Right, and in like Battlestar Galactica, there's a there's a definite fight against that. Right. So Battlestar right. Galactica is organized around a basically a military that, a group and a civilian group, fundamentally, and the the leader of the civilians asks the military to provide police services within the civilian ships, and the which is very it looks similar to taking a military force and pointing them outwards at an enemy, right? Right. It, it's, it, it's tangential. It's, it's adjacent to the, to, the, to the goal of the military. And he points out that if he allows this to happen, then the military is designed to look for enemies. And right. if he does that and he points them at the people, then he's going to end up with a problem where the military is going to see the people as enemies at some point, and he doesn't want to have that happen. Right. And, uh,
0: a situation that in our own world, certainly, we have no knowledge of. Oh, no, ever. no.
1: Never. We've never had that happen. In the, but that, I actually think that in a lot of ways, Battlestar Galactica shares a lot of the philosophical views of the Lost Fleet in that way. Mm, yeah. Because the, in, in, Henry's, in Henry's books, he the, the protagonist of the Lost Fleet series is a hero that was, that was lost in cold sleep for a century, and he was the big hero of the beginning of a war. And the civilians keep pointing out, if you go back to the capital with any number of fleet ships in force, they will consider it a military. coup. You're the most popular person in space. You could mm-hmm. give an order and the civilians would tear down the, like the, the random people on the street would stage, it would stage a revolution and tear down the, the halls of government. Right? Because they've right. It, it, we've been at war for a century while you were asleep. And he's like, well... Yeah, but I don't want to do that. The military is the servant of the civilian population, right? I can't seize power. I can't march the legions into Rome. right? And Battlestar Galactica has that struggle a lot too, where the the military has all of the force and all of the power in that series, right?
0: Right. I'm so glad you bring this up because, well, first of all, like I made the, you know, kind of joke, real comment about parallels to our own world, you know, right. in the last couple of years, both when we've seen the actual military called out to try and deal with protests and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but also the like super militarization of police forces. Yes, Battlestar Galactica is something I've thought of quite a lot because it's interesting. Because he, and, and that show, what I like is that the the cap the the head of the military, uh, Adama. On the one hand, he definitely does have that ethic of. You know, we as the military, we are the gun. We are not the person holding the gun. The civilians have to be the one to tell us who to shoot the gun at. Yep. But then there are times when he feels that the civilian gov- – then there are times when he feels that the civilian government is putting everything in danger. And he doesn't want to, but he's clearly willing to, you know, basically overthrow – to have a coup, to overthrow the, milit- the civilian government. Right. And – you know, it, it, it's such an interesting thing because I think one of the things I love so much about Battlestar Galactica, and it sounds like the the books you're doing do the same thing, is it says, okay, well, these are very nice ideals, and these ideals are what we should normally stick to, but what happens when really hard situations come up and maybe that ideal doesn't fit the situation? And I think in Battlestar Galactica, I think for the most part, I think Adama's wrong, but there's sometimes, I think there's at least one or two instances where I, I sort of see where I can very much understand why he seems to think he has to do that, you know? and. Right that it is murky and that it's not just – you can't just clearly say military over here, civilians over here as much as I very much want to.
1: Right. Well, and because the the thing is that the military is drawn from the the civilian population fundamentally, right? Right. If you don't have conscription, then there's no forced service. It's people who elected to put themselves in the position where they're holding the gun for somebody else. And they're they're people and they have judgments and they'll get frustrated. Um, There's a bit in the Lost Fleet series where – where john geary the the protagonist the admiral is um having a discussion with a captain and the captain's like hey i've canvassed a whole bunch of other captains in this fleet and we are ready to do whatever you feel is necessary when we when we come back and uh engage the civilian government because the one of the things in the lost fleet series is they're trapped deep behind enemy lines and have to fight their way back right right and so they he's like when we get back when we get home You can use the fleet to do whatever. I've got a majority of captains that are willing to back you no matter what you do. And he's like, when you say no matter what you do, do you mean overthrow the government? And he's (laughs) like, well, it wouldn't be overthrowing the government. You just need to fix it. We've had problems. It's like you haven't been here for the last century. And he's like, but I can't fix the government. He's like, if they give me an order that I can't deal with, I can resign my commission. Right. But I I can't decide to do things contrary to the orders of the government if they give me an explicit order to do a thing i have two choices follow the order or resign those are the only choices that i have Mm -hmm. and the the other member of the fleet's like oh well if you resign then you just go out and be in charge of them without being in charge of the military and he's like
0: what what are you talking about (laughs) right you know it's such an interesting question because again it does have so much relevance in our own world yeah Um, and for any NSA agents listening, this is all just like speculation of a couple of idiots. We have no idea what we're actually talking about. Right. I... But, you know, in the last couple of years, we've had numerous members of the military who, once they've retired, come forward and say that they very seriously considered t- either taking action because they thought that the commander in chief was violating his oath or not a, not mentally stable enough to to rule or or anything like that. Or considered, you know, refusing to carry out orders that they thought were either unconstitutional or uh, or were, you know, uh, just completely unbalanced and, and going to perhaps blow up the world or whatever right. that could have happened. Uh, like literally that, you know, we just had a general come out with another new book saying that at one point he was like talking down, you know, he, he basically was like trying to take the military command, the nuclear codes away from uh, the commander in chief at the time. Right. Don't imagine who I'm talking about.
1: All theoretical. And this is just based on public information, right? This isn't isn't us saying that we're going to stage a coup. This is some information that we've gotten from from existing sources.
0: Because my point here is, I am someone who would have always said, from all the things I watch, you know, civilian good, military bad. I would never, ever, ever want the military to ever have a situation like that. And I remember thinking, like, my first thought was like, well, good, I'm glad the generals did that, or I wish the generals had done that. And then being like, Matthew, I'm I'm kind of being sympathetic to the idea of a military coup in the United. That's ridiculous. Well,
1: but, and that, that's the thing is the well structured military organization. So I'm going to go back to Battlestar again. He, they have a they have an esprit de corps. They have a, a a like a like a feeling that they are part of a single unified group. They have training in and well, the officers should if the military is well run and well backed should have training in how to make some of these ethical decisions because we found it on these rocks in the real world, right? right. Just following orders is not a defense, right? And we, we, we absolutely know that. And so the officers are given courses in how to recognize when an order is illegal because you can't order. So if you, if you have a bunch of civilians that uh, you're in an actual military conflict and you've, uh, you've come across a building full of civilians, right? You can't Mm -hmm. just execute these civilians, Right. Like, we have laws of war, right? And so if your commanding officer tells you, just kill these people, that's an illegal order. You, that's the, the time that you're allowed to refuse an order is when an order breaks the laws of war, right? And, yeah.
0: I think it's so true. And my understanding, like, just in, a, in our own world is that, for example, in this country, uh, troops, soldiers, any and military people, please write in and correct me here if I'm wrong. But my understanding is that part of the oath they take is to defend the Constitution. Yes. And to defend the country. And so, yeah, if a military leader or a civilian leader is violating that, then then there is some wiggle room there. Yes. Let me ask you this, though, also, because you made a really good point a few minutes ago about how if it's not conscripts, you have then people who have want chosen to go into the military, you know, and then often it's, you know, maybe because their parents were in the military or they've been raised kind of idolizing the military. I mean, today, certainly we know that like Call of Duty and like I, I think there's nothing wrong with those video games. But Call of Duty is made in part with the U.S. military because they want teenagers to think being in the military is cool. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence about those connections and, and those connections to movies and even sort of the Marvel movies we talk about all the time. Yeah. But but there's an extent to which also I think there's a third category in that you to have conscription, you to have volunteers. But then like in a country like ours, and this is certainly true in militaries throughout history, you have people who volunteer – but not because they have a love of the military, because they have a love of putting food on the table. Right. And the military is the best way to get out of a, a bad situation or to get a college education. In the books, the, that's not an issue that I've ever seen come up in the science fiction shows that I, I watch. It, in the books you're talking about, do they ever address whether, like, not even the officers, but the, like, the enlisted men and women, uh, but the enlisted people, are, are are any of these books ones in which, like, yeah, they're kind of volunteers, but it's also a lot of socioeconomic situations yeah. that well, are kind of it, it, pushing people into the military. So
1: that's, that's addressed in Battlestar Galactica, actually. Uh, one of my favorite characters um, is uh, uh, Felix Gaeta. Oh, yes, you're yeah, right. And Felix Gaeta just wanted to get his education paid for, right? There's a, they, right. they do an interview episode in Season 2, I want to say, where they interview a bunch of people, on the, a bunch of members of the fleet to try to humanize them, right? and a lot of them signed up for the socioeconomic reasons right yeah. where where like where felix gate was like i i signed up because i wanted an education and a paycheck i didn't sign up to be a permanent military member right, right. and so th- they do address that in battlestar galactica quite a bit in in star trek they're post-scarcity so they've kind of deleted that that right. ability to create that type of tension um in the... Well,
0: and also, Starfleet's not a military. Remember.
1: Okay. Well, so that's so that's the thing <laughs> is that they start as not a military, right? They're yeah.
0: they they are a. I, I mean that as org- a joke because yep. we're going to get into that topic in a bit. I don't want to pull you off tangent.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so um, I'm reading the uh, the Divide series right now uh, by um, Duiz, and the protagonist signed up to get out of a terrible situation on a slum planet, basically, mm. and she's. It, it, there keeps being flashbacks to her. Like she signed up at 16 in order to get out of this terrible situation and, you know, got fake documents and stuff in order to be able to sign up at 16, which is no, like that's real, right? right. That, that doesn't have anything to like, that's a, that's a situation that happens all of the time in all sorts of different things. Uh, in the old man's war series, the way that they can script people is, well, not conscript people, you volunteer, but you are old and you're dying. And they take people up from Earth, and they drop them into clone bodies. And so what you're paying for is to get a second life, basically. But you're signing up for a pretty long term of that second life to be in the military. Mm -hmm. Um, In The Forever War, which is phenomenal. Have you ever read The Forever War by Joe Haldeman?
0: I haven't, no, but it's definitely going to go on my list.
1: Oh, The the Forever War is, he's a Vietnam vet. And Mm. in The Forever War, it's a novel about time dilation, basically. People yeah. sign up to be in a military conflict and there's no faster than light travel. And so when you travel out to the military conflict on a close to light speed ship and then travel back, well, everyone you know and love. And in fact, your entire civilization basically has vanished. Oh, right. A okay.
0: yeah, military contract is like 300 years.
1: Uh, well, in, in, in his case, in their case, I think they signed up for two years of real time, two years of their clock time, which ends up mm-hmm. being a thousand years of real time.
0: Wow. Yeah. And
1: so, uh, the the Forever War is a, a uh, the Forever War is a remarkable book. I don't want to mm. I I don't want to try to mischaracterize Joe Haldeman's work because he's got a lot of moving pieces in it. But yeah. they the, the the protagonist is is an educated person who signs up because he kind of believes, but he meets a lot of other people that have signed up for other reasons, right?
0: Right.
1: And that's uh, there's a lot of stuff going on.
0: Well, and I love that you bring up. Bring that up, and especially, I love that you bring that up, and especially the fact that he's a Vietnam vet. Because one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot, especially every time we get into this topic of, you know, is everyone in in one of these science fiction militaries a volunteer, or are they either actually conscripted or kind of pseudo conscripted through you know poverty and things like mm-hmm. that, or lack of opportunity. My mother, who was a very you know ardent activist, a lot of my ideas of ethics came from her. Yep. You know, I talked before about how she and I would watch the early Star Trek's together and one thing she often talked about with a lot of regret especially once the you know she and i were were joined in like she and i together you know protested the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war yep. and she would often tell me stories about the work she had done protesting the Vietnam war and she often said that one of her biggest regrets from that time was that you know the culture was we are against Vietnam we are against the atrocities in Vietnam and so we're going to see all the soldiers as you know baby killers and and you know Vietnam vets were treated horribly when they yeah. came back by people who were outraged by what the military did and you know my mother talked very openly about like you know that in later years like there was a lot of awareness of wait a minute like these people were con- li- many of them were literal conscripts there was a draft. Or many of them were, again, the sort of pseudo, like, they had no other opportunities. They had no right. other, you know, or or this is what five generations of their family had done. And and that, you know, by the time we got to, like, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, not just from her, but I think in the activist leftist community in general, there's much more of an understanding of we can be against the war while still support the, the conscripted people, you know, and that there's right. a difference there. And I, so I love that these books are, are talking about that. And it does not at all surprise me that a Vietnam vet was writing from that perspective because I... I've talked to a number of vets who you know, might have had very negative feelings about the conflict or whatever they felt about it, but were outraged by the way they were treated by people who acted as though like it was their decision to go invade this country that they'd probably never even heard of before they joined the military.
1: Right. And in the forever war, especially when you're talking about the alienation when they came home, that's what he's writing about specifically is you come back and you, it, you haven't changed or you don't feel like you've changed, but you have. And right. the, the world around you has changed and everything is foreign right and he he, and everybody treats you they're like well you were a soldier that volunteered but you know we hate what you've done out there and he's like this this is this is not what i this is not what i thought would happen when i went away to war right and so there's a lot going on in uh, he, he uses the science fiction fundamentally as a vessel to talk about alienation talking about the change of society the change of the people i i I strongly it like he won he won the, the Hugo and the Nebula and the mm-hmm. Locus award for this and there there's a very good reason it's it's a um I mean it, it's in the same vein as Slaughterhouse 5 in a lot of ways yeah. right and Slaughterhouse 5 is in the same like <clears throat> I Vonnegut is wrestling with a lot of these issues right
0: What I'm actually going to do is uh, I can't guarantee this but before I publish this episode I'm going to check with our uh, affiliate because we have the this podcast, because it's part of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network, we have a, a deal with a – I forget what it's called, but it's basically an organization of um, independent bookstores around the country. Uh, and if I, if this works out, I'll put the website on, on the show notes for this where basically like you can buy the book uh, through us. You'll get a slight discount on the book. You'll also be supporting the podcast a little bit, and it'll make sure that the book will be sent to you, but it'll come from an independent bookstore, so you're not just buying it. So it's like, yeah. A, you're not buying it from a, a big public – like uh, you're, a, you're not, not buying it from, from Amazon. You're, yeah,
1: You're something. not giving Jeff Bezos any money.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're not giving Jeff Bezos any money. You're giving the podcast a little yep. money to help with uh, you know microphones yeah, yeah. and stuff, and you're also giving the book at a bit of a discount. So uh, right. because I know I want to read the book from what you're talking about. I think a lot of our listeners may. So to definitely check that out, again, I can't promise it, but I hope it'll be in the show notes. Let me then switch to a topic that you started, we we kind of started with, and then I know you started to get into, and I had to pull you back a bit. We're talking about things when it is a military. Right. Let's talk about Starfleet for a bit. Because Starfleet claims, especially while Roddenberry is alive, that Starfleet is not a military. It is a exploration and science and diplomatic organization that just happens to be armed to the teeth, um, and, and, and then, just
1: happens to have a full set of ranks, a full hierarchical structure. Like right. it's it, it, like it. It's only modeled exactly on a submarine. You know, nothing to do with actual submarines. Right. But
0: and like I know that in the civilian, like on civilian ships, like even on a ship, like you know, a, a cruise line, there is still a you know order of you know kind of like the captain and then like the next level down and the next level down right among the people who run the ship right like the the dancers and the entertainers and the people who run the you know theaters on a cruise ship are certainly not part of that military structure right in the way that in starfleet they almost always are
1: yeah so when you look at next generation uh they spend a lot more time below decks basically right and they show you see different people with different roles and ranks because the the enterprise d is huge um and it's also very empty uh the the ship actually if you look at the schematics gives a tremendous amount of space per person and the they can carry you know like 1500 extra people on that ship or something they can evacuate a colony but, I've heard a lot
0: of military people talk about how when they were on a ship they don't remember a queen size bed that they got right. to sleep in and uh, well, all this uh, well kind of yeah
1: because that's that's the that's the other thing is that the, everything should be everything should look more like a submarine where everything's super tight right right uh, but the when you look at their organization everyone has rank pimps right except for a small number of like random civilians like Guinan who are just hanging out on the ship right it, like their ship's counselors who is a professional therapist, right, has rank pips, and she's she takes rank courses and, like, commands the ship during a couple of bits, right? Yeah. And the the random scientists all have rank pips. They don't have enough ranks for the number of people that are on the ship, but that's just right. a problem with the way that we have... Like, and you see mostly officers, and they don't really have enlisted, which is very strange.
0: Right. right? It's not to Chief O'Brien... Who yeah. and again, even there, like chief in our own military is like the equivalent of a sergeant, from what I understand in the na- in the it, navy. It, it, so
1: it's pr- pretty similar. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and like O'Brien never talks about going to Starfleet Academy. Yeah. But he, it, the fact that he is like in regular militaries, there's a huge line of distinction of like officers fractionizing with enlisted folk that never comes up. You know. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, they,
1: they don't they don't treat things as a as a military fraternization structure for instance like you're talking about right like in ds9 even which is ds9 takes one step further towards being actual military structure right but in ds9 you have relationships between bashir who's who's starfleet and a and a ranked officer and and dax right who also is a ranked officer and Mm -hmm. they talk a little bit about how like well uh, you can't technically have Kira command the Defiant because she's not a member of Starfleet, and then they have her command anyways because they don't care, right? right. They, they fundamentally, they're like, well, all of this military stuff is kind of like a, like a kabuki theater, right? It's mm-hmm. not there for real. And so they aren't these real professional, like, it, when, it, when you look at how, it, 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 contrasting it directly with Battlestar, they don't treat it as the military component being a professional aspect. They, they're amateur at being military. Right. And, Even though they
0: go to a Starfleet Academy, right. Where it's kind. I mean, I was gonna say it's like kind of a mix of college and military training. But you know, West Point, you learn physics and math, it's, it, or, yeah. and, and you know, like all the academic cat, acad- the military academies are all you know very good universities. Yes. Uh, kind of like, saying, like a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people, yeah, go to West Point or uh, Annapolis or Colorado Springs for the Air Force because, like gata, they want the education. They don't yeah. want. But but it comes with the military stuff, and one of the things you're you're making me think of is if folks want to think about a real life example uh, or a TV show based on a real life example of the kind of what we're talking about, where like everyone gets put into the military. Hawkeye in Mash has a military rank. Yeah, I, I believe he's a captain. I think yes. he he often like he because he and like a lot of the other doctors and you know Klinger is a sergeant. The um everyone in the Mash unit, even the mili- the medical staff have military rank because for them it's not you can't have like a hospital with military guarding it everyone has to be part of the military
1: well and they um one thing so i haven't served in the military but i i feel like the the paul sinclair books by henry which take uh, which are a new ensign getting on a on a ship on a basically a the space equivalent of a of a submarine right right it's it's set near future we have sp- we have spaceships and they have a space fleet and it's modeled on the naval fleet and i'm pretty sure a chunk of it is semi-autobiographical of how mm. like how to how you get on a new ship as a new officer and how out of place you feel and everything right and he it, like reading those gave me a real sense of how members of the military feel about how they function in the military right where the the ensigns are professional managerial class and he gets asked questions about during different circumstances you have enlisted that you that you're in charge of uh do you know everything they do all the time and he's like no but i know the important things Mm -hmm. they're like do you have a do you know exactly how to take apart and put together this weapon system and he's like uh i have a chief petty officer for that right Mm -hmm. I, i have a person who has all these skills i have a high level knowledge of exactly how it works and i have a knowledge of who has all the knowledge that i need And that uh, that um, level of training and he he's it's instilled in him that he has to be the one to make important decisions. Right. The enlisted's job is to know their technical skills very well. And the officer's job is to take a higher level view and to to make ethical decisions and have tons of training. He like he went through a one month legal course. And that's a that's a hell of a course to jam into somebody's head for a month of military law. And the the these character these characters in Starfleet don't do that. They don't treat the military aspect as as a professional thing that they've spent a bunch of time. There's a couple that do. Like Worf really really wants to be professional military, right? uh, Compared to everybody else,
0: because in part though he comes from a I think one of the ideas of this is that part of the Roddenberry post-scarcity, you know, beautiful, wonderful, gay space communism, which, mm-hmm. by the way, I'm super in favor of, is that the military isn't like a, you know, training yourself to go out and kill people is something that people would look down on. So they're not military. Worth comes from a very different culture, where the military is prized, and no one would ever question that. Right. And and it's funny you also bring up the idea of the, the person who has like a little bit of legal experience, but just a month worth, but relies on the, the petty officers and the like, that was exactly my father. My father yep. was drafted during Vietnam, uh, but he had finished, I think, two. Years, I think he had finished law school, and so he was basically the equivalent of that. You know, the the enlisted person who there was a, the the actual lawyers in the military. They may have, uh, I think, they may have law degrees as well. Yeah, but they like, do.
1: The the he, the Jag office has, is all fully legally trained and have a law degrees,
0: Right. But he would talk about how they would rely on him quite a lot because he had, he was much closer to that kind of world, you know, yeah. whereas they had all the military training. Right. So, so why is this bad? What's the problem? I think we've kind of hinted at it, but let's get into the directly. What's the problem with something like Starfleet not acknowledging the military? Because I, I think it does do a lot of non-military things. Yes. Yeah. But it certainly is very militaristic. What's the problem with it saying, oh, we're not a military, we're not a military all the time?
1: So the One thing that happens as you get more technology is you concentrate more hands in the power of or more power in the hands of fewer people. So uh, uh, a thousand years ago, uh, a person had, you know, a sword and their voice to command people. Right. And they the technology of of wielding power was mostly the technology of manipulating people in a lot of ways. Nowadays, the technology of having power, you can have enough power to destroy a city physically held in the hands of one person. Mm-hmm. and that that's just now when you extrapolate that out forward it gets really spooky and the big problem is dropping rocks on people right. so uh the like the the dinosaurs were wiped out by a meteor the tunguska meteor is the largest impact that we've had in modern times right and we've never had a very major meteor hit a populated area we're lucky there's science fiction mm-hmm. movies about deflecting meteors and stuff most of that is pipe dreams we don't have the technology to deflect anything big right Right. now bruce Um, willis is
0: not landing on an asteroid with a drill soon.
1: exactly and so if you have a fleet that can get out in space and can move things around in space which is fairly trivially easy if you have a ship that can get out to something Mm -hmm. then you can you can drop comets or asteroids on civilized population centers or you can just like craft up a big metal slug and kick it out of your rail gun and you gain all of the force from dropping something from orbit, right? For
0: any of my uh, my five Babylon Five fans who are out there as listeners, mm-hmm. they know this happens. Because I'm not yeah. going to give it away, but yeah, one of the fleets uses what they call mass drivers. Yep. And I had to look that up. Yeah, it's exactly that. It, it is taking a mass and just shooting it. I think they actually literally go out and like collect uh, rocks from an yep. asteroid field and then just bombard the planet with them yep. because. Yeah, it's you can have even just like a you know a ten foot uh, diameter comet hitting the ground at well, that kind of speed.
1: Yeah, t- so a ten foot diameter comet would burn up because it's not because the because it's mostly made out of water. But yeah, right. No, I mean, yeah, yeah, a yeah.
0: Ten, But a ten foot long rock, rock yeah, you know, or whatever. A, it was.
1: Yeah, a, t- a ten foot wide metal slug will hit and with a lot of kinetic force. Right. Right. And uh, the lost fleet goes into this where they talk about bombarding civilian populations and that like jungary gets woken up and they're like all right we fought our way out of the out of the home system the enemy we're in a different system um while we're here we're just going to bombard all their civilian targets right and he's like what the what are you talking about that's an atrocity that's against the laws of war and against like moral codes right they're not they're not combatants they didn't sign up to be killed by the military they're like we've been in total war with these people for a century he's like yeah but that's ethically wrong yeah right and so the the thing is that he's had specific military training to know when like when to apply military force starfleet if they haven't had a ton of experience with like with you know just following orders with with all the ethical quandaries that come when you have lots of power concentrated in the hands of a few people then they they might get into situations where they're like well these people are a threat we don't like why don't we just like Make the chaotic good call to drop rocks in them, right? Mm-hmm. We think that that killing a thousand people on this colony will save, you know, a million lives.
0: Right, it's the Hiroshima argument. You right, know, you, you you nuke them to prevent all the military losses that would happen. That kind of thing. And right. It's, in some ways, you can definitely talk about this in terms of you know directly targeting civilians. Yes. But part of the problem is also that you know when it comes to space battles and especially you know spaceships targeting things on a planet, like. Precision bombing is a real problem. Mm-hmm. You know, even in our own world, like, our military claims that with drone strikes and the like, they can target, but all the time we hear about civilian casualties. Right. And, Imagine, like, a, an aerial bombardment from space of a, like, trying to blow up the military installation in a city, like... Good luck, like so it's, only it's, hitting that thing.
1: Yeah, between so it's not hard to put things pretty close to where you want them. But pretty close is very vague. You have atmospheric right. disturbances that kick your thing around. Your if you're dropping actual rocks, they might not be even masses and they might tumble, right? And so you can precisely with orbital mechanics put put a thing somewhere. But if it's a dumb rock, well, they can move. Things can move and change, right? Right like you you could have a bunch of civilians have a big meeting in the building and get killed right it's so you like starfleet has this problem where they have a ton of power concentrated in very few hands right and they don't have the they don't have the 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 more rigid structure that you kind of that in our world we've we've figured we need because we we have this problem in our military as well they have they have all sorts of weapons That can hurt a lot of people. A a platoon of Marines could wipe out a city of a few thousand people of civilians in most areas, right? Mm -hmm. They, They could just come through and kill them all. So what checks do we have on that kind of power in our world? And why doesn't Starfleet have the same kind of checks on ships with weapons that can clearly destroy entire planets?
0: Right. And like they do every now and then introduce characters who are you know, Carol Marcus in, in yep. uh, Wrath of Khan or others in TNG and, like, who's they go? – I'm not part of the military. I'm not part of Starfleet. I'm a scientist. Yeah. Which that alone belies the idea that Starfleet isn't a military to some extent. But but even beyond that, I, I think you're right about the chain of command. I also just think that particularly when it comes to first contact situations – you know, we talked about this with um, uh, Battlestar – with uh, – Old Man's War. Yeah. Star- that and also with uh, Stargate. Stargate. Yeah. But even in, um, you know, every time there's first contact in Starfleet, uh, in in Star Trek, most of the time, you know, Picard is is putting on the the diplomat idea and he's not being a military person. Right. But it's often made clear, again, especially once we get past the Roddenberry era, that the people he's talking to know that he is, you know, speaking softly but carrying a very big stick. Right. And – I think there's at least two or three episodes, uh, maybe in Voyager, I think it is, but maybe also be in TNG, where the people they're trying to have first contact with, they're like, okay, you say you're not a military, but your spaceship there can destroy our world very easily. Right. Why did you come here with all these guns to talk to us about peace? You know, And I think that's that's another ethical issue that really comes up, especially because they don't name it. Because I think, to some extent, if, if this would be an entirely different show, obviously, but if you got a ship like the Enterprise- that was civilian run and had, you know, a science division and education division and like, you know, the the people who were doing like, you know, the, the, the cook is in the military. The doctors, none of them are in the military. Right. There is a military group on the ship for security and maybe there's some weapons, but they still all fall under the civilian command of the captain. I think that'd be a very different show, but really right. raise a, a – be a very interesting way to, to change that ethical question
1: right and that's i keep going back to battlestar because that in a lot of ways it's actually the way that battlestar operates right right where uh, where admiral adama is and they have this tension in season two especially with the pegasus where when the pegasus shows up they say well we're the military and we have all the guns and we're going to march the legions in and we're going to be in command you why are you giving command to this to this school teacher she right she says And Adama's like, because she is the highest elected official that we have, do you propose that we run an election? We can do that. That's fine. But she's not military, and so I'd have to defer to her for strategic decisions, and we consult. And sometimes I'll tell her that her things can't work or won't work. Right. But oftentimes, they'll go to her, and she's the final call on things, despite... not having any of this military and ethical training because they're like, we must defer to civilian authority. Right. Um, but and one thing I really yeah. like
0: is that there's uh, there's definitely some times where he talks her out of things. Yeah. But there are also some instances, and these are some of my favorite episodes, where he says, Madam President, this is not going to work. You're wrong. And she says, like, I think you're seeing this as a military person. And it turns out she's right. Yeah. And, and he's willing to sort of accept that and to kind of recognize that you know, yeah, like it. You know, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. If you're a military, not always. And I want to be very clear; I'm not trying to impugn military. Yeah. You know, in the real it's world, just the opposite. Like, yeah. But but it is very likely that you know you're going to see things as potential threats because that's what you're trained to do. And so for him to sort of recognize that sometimes his viewpoint is wrong, I think it's one of the best parts about that show.
1: Right. And so that's why I, I keep going back to it very specifically because I think that it's the contrast, right? Whereas right. Starfleet is people who have. And actually, I think that it, this is probably accidental, but it looks it, like it, it feels right, where they're a post-scarcity society that kept some of the trappings of a military space fleet and then forgot about it. They were like, we don't need it. We don't need a lot of these things because our society is so good at not dropping rocks on each other and not having wars. So they lost all of that capability. And then they have a bunch of wars in Next Generation and then in DS9, Right. Yeah, the more wars they have, the more they start looking like a military.
0: I think that's so true. And as we've talked about, like once Roddenberry is no longer running things in DS9, it does start to become like that militariness comes back again. And I think one of the reasons why DS9 is one of my favorite shows is that it kind of creates the situation we were talking about from Battlestar where you don't want to be a military, but the threat of... This first comes up actually somewhat in TNG where the threat of the Borg kind of starts to push it more to being a military and, you know, Picard and our heroes are pushing back against that. Right. But by the time of the DS9 between the Borg, the Dominion, the Cardassians, like everything that's going on, everyone's pretty much accepted that you're going to have to act like a military. And I don't think it's ever specifically stated in those terms or talked about as a major change, but the Defiant is 100% a warship. Oh yeah. It's a ship built to go into combat.
1: Well, and they it, when they talk about that with the Defiant as a prototype, that means that they're trying to build warships, right? Right. And then they have this it, like, they have this discussion where they're like, well, the Defiant's different from every other Federation ship. It doesn't have these big crew compartments for science. It doesn't have a lot of the other stuff that's going on as a science ship, right? And it, it's clear, I agree, that that the Defiant is designed as that. And when they show up at the beginning of DS Nine around Bajor the Bajorans are like we've allowed you in because you're uh, uh, you specifically have not been a military right right they the Cardassians are a military it's super clear right right and the Cardassians conquered them and built a space station and then they're letting in the Federation and they they say basically you can tell it's because the Federation has a history of not being a military but they don't sign up they don't join the Federation at the start of the show they say you can come in and you can help us rebuild like you you won a war against Cardassians and claim the space station which is fine but we could we could probably like if the bajorans really pushed back it's possible the federation would have just bail and let them try to sort out their own crap on the space station right
0: oh i mean there's a, a time in i think season two where they come very close to doing that yeah exactly because of the the and and one thing i love about that is you're right the bajorans are very clear they don't want a military there yes but they do want – but they are also specific that they say, we know we need you because we can't keep Cardassia out forever. Right. And, like, there's this explicit agreement that if Cardassia does try to reconquer Bajor, the Federation is going to provide military defense. And so it's a very interesting. It's like we like that you're not fundamentally a military, but we also – like, don't just send civilians without guns. You know, send your photon torpedoes and phasers, please.
1: Right. And the, the other thing that Starfleet doesn't have is they don't have service branches. So one thing that we have in our world is we have... In the United States, we have the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, Space Force. I don't know why. Uh, But, like... So we we have these branches of military that are specialized in doing different things, right? Right. And the... This is... This compartmentalizes power, which is... I was talking about putting power in fewer hands. When you compartmentalize power, you make sure... That the same group that controls um, your tanks doesn't also control your planes, right? Right. And so they, it used to be that there was a that there was a army air force and a navy air force, and they pulled both of those air forces and made them their own separate thing. Right. But the Navy still has its own air force and the Marines still have their own air force. So we control like the, the largest four air forces in the world or something. Right. (laughs) Uh, And so, but the, but the, but the point being in general is that we've, we've decided that the way to deal with things on a large scale, how, how it functions society, societally is to break up power. Um, And Starfleet doesn't have that. And you know, they don't have that because O'Brien is serving on a, on a spaceship, but he went and did, like ground forces military work right right and but they they don't consider it a different organization they never talk about yeah
0: they never talk about the difference and they also never show it like yeah there is never we never actually see ground warfare we see like little squads of like four or five people fighting against you know six or seven people but we never see like artillery and tanks and stuff like that in any kind of real way
1: right And so what they're doing is they're producing, like, this idealized, like, glossed-over kind of view of military interactions. Mm -hmm. And they have these amateurs that are doing this, that their weapons are so good that they don't really end up having to build a professional core. And it's very strange. Because when you look at, like, how, again, going back to the, the contrast with Battlestar Galactica, Battlestar Galactica they they specifically have a ship that's organized with people knowing their roles very very well Mm -hmm. and so they have the differentiation between officers and enlisted right right and they have the the people whose jobs are very specific to what they do and they they have people who do particular jobs people who are trained as their backups and they have this organizational structure where they where Orders flow down from the top and feedback flows up from the bottom step by step. Mm. And it, 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 that's just basically a way to organize and, and manage power in groups. And they, it's not really that way. It's, it's closer yeah. to a, it's closer to a business. It's closer to a corporation in right. TNG where you have, you'll have staff reviews and stuff and people managing departments, but they're very flat. Right.
0: Right. And, and, there's one other example I want to bring up, which is I would say one of the I think one of the top three Star Trek shows ever made, which is the Orville. Um, I know yeah, a lot of right. people don't think of a Star Trek, but 100, no, it's, it's fan fiction. It's a yeah. love letter to Star Trek. Right. But one of the things that they explore that we kind of get to in Star Trek with the the Klingons, but I think here they go much deeper. Is the start their fleet they call it the Union is made up of a number of different races. Yep. And they're very explicit that it's a military. But they also sort of like – there's clearly that there are other groups that do exploration and that the military only has somewhat of a limited uh, work. But like that, that that they do do some first contact and stuff like that. But one of the things that comes up is that because they all come from different societies and different worlds, those worlds have radically different approaches to yeah. how they view a career in the military. Right. And one of them is an absolute hero back home because they go to the military. The other – the family looks at them as an absolute failure. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite episodes in the second season is about uh, this character who, you know, sh- they think of themselves as this incredible, like, you know, very powerful, very important part of the, 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 ship. the, the yeah. ship, the crew. And her family is like, well, okay, but your sibling's a doctor and, or your sibling's a studying university. And that's what's important. Right. And it's too bad you had to go into the military because you couldn't do anything else. And I... I really like how they explore that just – yeah, every culture is going to have a very different approach.
1: Right. We, I mean that, and that's the case on Earth and we tend to gloss that over as well. Oh, yeah. And it's it's utterly fascinating to, to see these, these contrasts that are built in and how much people care about this and whether or not people treat their military well. Yeah. Right?
0: And, and it's not just like different countries. I mean like – Growing up where I did, the idea of going to the military was like, "What's wrong with you?" You yeah. grew up in South Carolina or some places like that. Of course, like that's an honorable thing to do,
1: right? And like even within my own family, I have uh, I have a cousin who and uh, an uncle who's former Navy and a cousin who who went into the military um, to follow his dad. And my family considers that a perfectly honorable and reasonable profession. The majority of my family doesn't do that, but yeah. we're we're directly related to to a regular military service family right and so like looking at the contrast when when i'm here in minneapolis and a lot of my friends don't really have that many military connections and i'm looking at my facebook feed and i see you know back home i have a bunch of friends who who enlist right Mm -hmm. and then i have here in the cities hardly anybody and it's it's just a very different and very interesting cultural split just even within our own culture right
0: I mean, I've, I'm kind of loving that we're talking about this in terms of science fiction military because, yeah, where I grew up, you know, the geeks were the last people you'd ever think of being in the military in any way, shape, or form. And and also just, you know, I went, I was in a, uh, my family was a varied economic backgrounds at some point doing fairly well, at some point really not, but I went to a, you know, private school that I've talked about. I, I, I lived most of my life among people who were very elite. And even, when, even with my friends who weren't, it's still like, you know, Joining mm-hmm. the military from New York City was, at least the parts I lived in, especially in the geeky world, was unheard of. Yeah. And the first times I started going to, like, science fiction conventions or just, like, hanging out online and talking to people about Star Trek or things like that, and I would hear people who were either former or often current military. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? Why would – but then I realized, like, actually, of course. Like, I mean, age just like anyone going go into the military. You can just be a geek and love the military. That's fine, too. Yeah. But also that, like – a lot of them would talk about, like, it was things like, you know, Battlestar Galactica or Stargate right. or things that had, they launched it because they were into military things and that helped get them into science fiction or geek stuff or anything like that. And I, and, it, it's odd to me, but I think that through that has given me a lot more connections to military folks. I have right. very good friends in my life now who are former military.
1: Right. And and when you look at it, the, the military isn't all just, we, we, we're colored a lot in our perception of of the military in our world by movies like apocalypse now or like everything's a military training montage where you get trained in to be a ground troop right yeah but we have floating nuclear reactors right Mm -hmm. the uh, the like the navy has an incredible amount of technology they have floating cities powered by nuclear reactors that are covered with airplanes that cost a billion dollars right and so when, when you when you look at it that way you need a lot of technical expertise to run the modern right. military, and so that though that there's a surprise, a very large amount of overlap. Military science fiction is very, very popular, right? Yeah. Uh, because the the military, in some ways, is science fiction yeah. when they're out there running aircraft carriers, right?
0: And I mean, entertainment like space battles generally put a lot more butts in seats than do you know four people sitting around a table. Right, and like it's funny, and I'll, I'll even I'm I'm not gonna say guilty about it because I think it's fine to enjoy that as long as you have some understanding of the the ethical issues involved. I love Star Trek. I talk about how I love the diplomatic aspects of Star Trek, the ethical aspects of Star Trek. My favorite piece of Star Trek media is Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan, which is straight up a submarine military movie.
1: Right, it's like, it's like, <laughs> it it is literally it, it like in in a lot of ways it's the same movie as the Hunt for Red October. It's entirely different, yeah. but. Yeah, the, yeah the It's pers- about
0: two yeah. spaceships trying to find each other with bad communicate with bad sensor situation, and it's about military stuff, and right. I love it. It's a great movie, but it's not really Star Trek at all.
1: No, and uh, but uh, in some ways it is because it's there's this extended sequence with Carol Marcus where she tells right. Kirk, "You're in the military," right? Like you she don't didn't
0: want him uh, to yeah. be involved in helping to raise their son because he was in the military, and she's a scientist, and and you can see her son is very like oh, Starfleet. He one her son one hundred percent believes that Starfleet is military, and he has right. no regard for Kirk because of that.
1: Right. Well, and and the but the gradient like so the gradient in in the in Battlestar is very stark between military and non military, right? But the right. gradient in Star in Star Trek is very closer. I think that the edges have been softened off of Starfleet from not having big external threats or internal threats, right? From being right. a post scarcity society that where the military ends up like just losing a lot of its cohesion because it doesn't have an enemy to push against yeah and so then they have to rebuild that over the course of deep space nine right and you end up with a lot of really tough ethical decisions where they're basically trying to rebuild a, a functional externally focused military organization over yeah. the course of deep space nine and so they have these choices uh in the pale moonlight is my, is in the top five episodes of all of star trek right
0: yeah, and we're we are one hundred percent going to do an episode oh, just on the ethics yes. of
1: that episode because it's I, I so agree. much there. Uh, and uh, but just uh, just For- in general, that's an eth- That whole episode is an ethical episode about how the military, uh, like who pu- who pulls the cart, right? Right. Is is the are you driven by your need to have military conflicts? Are you driven by a want to have peace? Like who? Like are you the horse? Are you the driver? Like who's who's the one who make, gets to make these choices? And the, the, like, the military, the, you can, uh, Julius Caesar, in our own history, marched the legions into Rome, right? Yeah. And he had the military power, and he had the power to do whatever he wanted because he had the, the high technology of the time of commanding legions, right? He was the best commander. And so, therefore, right. he was able to use that technology, in addition to all of the other technologies that he had, to take control of Rome.
0: Right. And I should also say, by the way, uh, for those people who have a better memory of my own catalog than I have, uh, we'll probably talk about it again. We have already done an episode on In the Pale Moonlight. Uh, where we talk about it as part of uh, – it's, ethic- it's the episode called Ethical Villains where yeah. we talk about um, the character in that uh, in regard to Sinestro and Killmonger. And it was with uh, a person you and I both know, Riki Hayashi. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, there already is an episode about that to some extent, but it's a show I'm sure we'll come back to and come back to. Yeah. So I think we're kind of at a good point to to wrap up. I have one more yeah. thing I want to say about the military kind of off they ba- uh, uh, a little bit off topic, but do you have any other kind of last thoughts or questions you wanted to bring up? Um
1: I just wanted to really talk about how the the other thing that we didn't talk about much is the because the military is driven by chain of command, you can mm-hmm. hide things. And they they right. go through this in a bunch of different shows. And the what are the ethics of lying to the civilian populace right Mm. you goof something up and you you screw up a weapons test and or you accidentally start a shooting war and you hide it because you can you can oftentimes do that within the chain of command right right military cover-ups are a very real thing and they're even more real when you're you know a hundred light years away right and science fiction does address this at some point but it's it's something that that a real military has to think about, of how yeah. how public and how much oversight are you allowed to have on the military.
0: I mean, I remember even in Star Trek, there's definitely some discussions about how much... It, because I think the two things that happen is, one is there's often this fear of, like, well, we, sh- we don't want to spook the public, you know? So how much right. do we tell them about just how scary the Borg is? But also the fact that, like, you know, everyone on Deep Space Nine is totally surprised when they find out that Defiant exists, and the Defiant's yeah. being built for, like, five, ten years, you know?
1: We talk about them totally radically changing their philosophy on ships. The people in the fleet didn't know that they were changing their philosophy on ships.
0: And I think that's such an important thing because it also brings up the the one last issue that I had had that I I wanted to mention which wasn't sure we were going to have time, is that today at least, you know, you might have a general on the ground in Afghanistan, which, by the way, all all the stuff we're talking about about what the military should be doing, I, I think in the back of all of our heads should be thinking about, like, the military as nation building, you know, and all yes. the problems that go with that. But they are at least like, you know, that person always has instantaneous contact with their superiors who have instantaneous contact with the civilian leadership. Yes. That always hasn't been the case. You know, one of the one of the biggest problem, I mean, there's eight million problems with the age of discovery and exploration, but yep. is, you know, you, you have a military expedition going into, you know, the, the land they don't know anything about. They can't write back to the king and ask what should we or shouldn't do. It's going to be three months of communication blockades, and so of course, just well, we see someone. We're going to conquer them. Yeah. In some science fiction, and unfortunately, a lot of the stuff I read is very inconsistent about when they think this is an issue and when it isn't. <laughs> but often they do like often they'll uh, you know point out that hey, like it's going to take the light speed you know signal that we're sending back home. 20 minutes to get there and back or yep. you know i mean if it's light speed it should take there's no way to have interstellar contact but they somehow do it anyway
1: well if they and, have ftl you can courier your data around but yeah right you're still and, limited by whatever your ftl system is
0: and one thing i've noted is there's often times where picard has to kind of like check in with his superiors back home or kirk does i don't ever remember them talking about like well we talked to the civilian leadership you know yeah um and it's something I love about, I, I keep talking about it, but Babylon 5, you do have a military commander running the space station, which seems yep. really problematic, but the, whenever he has, uh, like, he's not sure about something, he calls up a member of the civilian government. Yes. Generally, it's a, a senator, but also the the civilian president is a very big part of the show. And right. I, you know, and it's, but it's when, in the shows where they're more, more, I think, Accurate uh, scientifically about how slow communication would be over vast distances in space. Yeah, not only do you have a military commander, but even if they're theoretically under civilian control, the civilians have no way to influence what they're doing in the moment.
1: Right. Uh, the, the the lost fleet deals with this really heavily a lot, where he's in the first few books they're trapped behind enemy lines and every decision is John Gary's decision. Right. Right. He he doesn't have civilian oversight. And then he gets back and has civilian oversight and then they send him out again for the for the second series. They're like we're going to take your fleet who are actually like a political problem because you won the war at the end of the last series, but we have this giant fleet that we don't know what to do with, so we're going to send you out to explore the borders of of civilization. Mm-hmm. And then he's like so I have a military expedition. I've been given some civilian experts, but I've been clearly placed in charge. Right? Yeah. The civilians aren't aren't a check on top of him. He's the only check on top of himself. And then in the next series, they do it basically again, but this time they take an ambassador and put the ambassador mm. in charge of him. And so he has this cycle of like, now he's now he has somebody else to answer to. And so this right. ambassador is like, all right, we're going to do this thing. And he's like, I can't ethically make that. I, I can't ethically do the thing that you're asking me to do. Yeah. And the civilian's like, well... I need you to do it. And he goes, okay, I'll resign my commission. She's like, but if you resign your commission, your fleet won't listen to me. And he's like, "Yeah." well, I, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I can't ethically do the thing that you want me to do. So I have to resign. And she's like, I, but.
0: I, it, it, <laughs> and that gets into all this stuff about the cult of personalities yeah. and the, like, you know, is your loyalty towards the institution or to the people running Correct. the institution? Um, you know, and I, all this puts me in mind of uh, an incident in history that I I am always, I've been very fascinated about and I've read a lot of, which is, to my mind, the the most recent is to my mind kind of the most famous or the biggest example uh, in recent history of civilians like countermanding the military, and that's. Um, President Truman firing Douglas MacArthur and relieving him yeah. of duty because he wanted to be much more mil- he wanted to be much more aggressive towards China. I think he wanted to literally invade China as yeah. part of the Korean War. And I some of the books that I read, one of the points that one of them made is, you know, that's happening in the late 1940s early 1950s when, you know, radio contact is like MacArthur can talk directly to Ro- uh, Roosevelt and then Truman. Mm-hmm. MacArthur was born in 1880. Yes. He went to West Point in like 1901 or yeah. 1898. Yeah. He was trained into the military at a time where if the telegraph lines are perfectly working, maybe you can get some civilian oversight, but there was much more kind of authority uh, and discretion given to the military commander in the field because they didn't have the technology to have that kind of communication. And then by the time of the Korean War, they do... But MacArthur still, he, you know, he has been trained all of his life to think, "I'm the military commander on the field. That means my word goes. and I'll explain it to the civilians in six months when they find out about what happened." Yeah, and that that kind of communication disconnect is a big part of, wh- you know, why he thought he could do the things he wanted to do, uh, even though the president was saying like, "Hell no."
1: Right, and that, and that also, like I was saying, with the chain of command, can lead to cover-ups. Right. Right. Like you. It, like, when you have time to get your story straight, uh, in heavy quotation marks and, and bad emphasis, then you have the chance to hide bad things. And we we fared out this kind of stuff all of the time, right, yeah. historically, where we find out that, you know, some atrocity or some terrible thing or some even just bad decision that they didn't want to own up to happened, right? The, the trade-off to that is sometimes people screw up and they get held, it, they they make a, an honest mistake and then they they get punished for that forever mm-hmm. because they have this immediate instant oversight i would rather have body cams yeah right like that's the that's what you're talking that's what we're fundamentally talking about is whether or not whether or not they have we have right. actual real oversight of the actual real decisions that are made
0: i mean i think a lot of us think that you know, Vietnam was the war where U.S. soldiers committed all these atrocities, <laughs> but we were absolutely perfect in World War II or other wars. Obviously, it's not true. And Like I don't, you know, every military commits atrocities in we, war. We I mean, fire firebombed
1: kind of... Dresden for
0: goodness' sake. Yeah, sakes. exactly. Like, and a big part of it. was, I mean, there was reporters with the military in World War II, but there was an incredible amount of censorship. Yeah. And the reporters in Vietnam, they had they could film things and they could get it mm-hmm. out to TV in a way, and. One thing it brings to mind is that some of my favorite TV shows, uh, and again, I keep going to Babylon 5, but others yep. as well, there's there's a, there's a press, there's reporters. Yes. Battlestar Galactica, the media, is a big part of it. Right. I don't ever remember there being a media. In, nope. That, like, in, in Star Trek Generations, there's media who are there for when Captain Kirk is giving his, like, tour of the new Enterprise under the new command. But other than that, there's never a moment where Picard has to worry about, like, a camera in his face or a reporter who's going to tell people back home. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's nothing of that in that world.
1: Yeah. Like, and they, they, Star Trek in a lot of ways, like I'm saying, is like a, it has the edges taken off of a lot of this stuff, right? It, It wants to show the core issues. And this is not to say Star Trek is bad at showing this core issue. Star Trek is one of the most, most thought-provoking progressive shows that's ever been on television right absolutely but they they oftentimes will just file the edges off of a complicated issue just to show you the core thing they don't want to they don't want to get into the weeds they don't want to get into you know should we suppress the press right Right. uh no they they just want to talk about like some some core ethical issue leave it on the table and then kind of walk away right
0: you know, and I remember when Babylon Five came out. It, it came out while Star Trek was yep. coming out in terms of DS Nine. Yep. Part of why I was so surprised by it is, like, one of the first episodes, I think, like episode five or six, there's a labor union on the space station, and the labor union goes on strike. You know, oh and man, like that was so different than anything you've ever had yeah. in Star Trek. Well, like, why?
1: Why on DS Nine? Why isn't there a character who's a reporter for the Bajoran, for the Bajoran yeah. news media? Right. You you can abstract all media issues because B- Bajor needs to know what's going on in the station that's hanging in orbit about them that can drop rocks in them, right? Yeah. Like, the station is a humongous threat, and you they know it's a humongous threat. Why isn't there somebody reporting back to the Bajorans? Why is the only Bajoran that you have in the station that reports back Kira?
0: Right. Especially because we know that... There are different factor. There are different factions on Bajor who have different opinions about it. And right. you know when those di- like one faction doesn't like Star Trek Starfleet there and wants to get yeah. rid of them, and that's a major plot point. And whether or not those people know about what's going on, like the protection of information, is a very big plot point. Often.
1: Right. And but, if, the, if I was the, yeah. if I was the Bajorans and the Starfleet said we want to control the station, I would say we need somebody in your command staff, Kira. That's a good call. We also right. need a civilian oversight member who has access to everything. And right. the Starfleet goes, Why do they need access to everything? And oh, you want a separate civilian oversight member? And I go, Yeah, I want somebody who Kira doesn't like.
0: Yeah. Because Kira has a very distinct point of view. Yeah. That does not represent all of her planet. Correct. I think she represents the government of her planet. And although even there, she's often a conflict. Yeah, she's
1: yeah. a coin flip, right? Like. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I'm so glad we got to talk about these issues. Yes. The, the One thing I wanted to bring up this is more just kind of a, a yeah. funny aside, but I, I said that I, I, in geek circles I've met a lot of former military, also a lot of current military. Yeah. And uh, just another example of kind of where it came up in ways that those of us who had thought about military things most of our lives were kind of amazed by, uh, I used to be very involved in live-action role-playing, LARPing. Yep. Uh, and which for anyone, if you don't know, it's, it's like Dungeons and Dragons, but we're all kind of standing up. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons meets improv meets sometimes like a you know, weapon. Yeah. cosplay. Exactly. And we had someone who was very important to our group who all of a sudden was like, okay, guys, uh, we need to figure out what my character's going to do. Cause I just got called up. I'm in the national guard. And I'm getting shipped overseas, and we're yep. like, "Oh, that that's a thing," and and had to kind of work out a way for like their character to still like contribute by email and stuff like that, and video conference every now and then. Mm-hmm. The other thing I thought was even funnier was there was another game that I was in where two people who had never met each other both realized they were playing in this game together. They both realized they were military. One of them was a lieutenant commander. The other was a sergeant.
1: Oh, and now uh... they had a
0: question of like, okay, wait can my character attack your character? Because, like, is that disrespecting a senior officer? You know, what's the, like... <laughs> and, and, like, they had fun with it, and they quickly yeah. decided, like, quickly, like, this is totally... Off. But every now and then, the one who was the officer would be like, all right, um, sergeant, go get me a drink. And the sergeant would be like, yes, sir! And go off and, like, you know, <laughs> grab a glass of water or something like that. And they were clearly having fun with it. But are you guys would tell, like, there was something real happening there. And yeah. like, all the rest of us were like, what? I-, I don't know what the rules are about how these two are supposed to interact. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so, like, if you want a view into mili- into military through a military science fiction lens, I suggest either the Paul Sinclair or Lost Fleet novels by um, John Henry Reddy's Jack Campbell right? Mm. and the the Lost Fleet's perspective of basically senior leadership, and the the Paul Sinclair novels. I know that you've read the first one, A Just Determination, right? Uh, is from the perspective of an ensign. Um, the the Forever War is phenomenal. Like it. Yeah, it, I, it's it, like I I would put it up there against Slaughterhouse Five as one of the best pieces of military-related science fiction ever written.
0: Yeah, and I I really like that first Paul Sinclair novel. I remember I kind of disagreed with the author on some yeah, things, and but that's and good. Got,
1: we we thought yeah, that it was, I, yeah,
0: but I want I think we did uh, some talking about it. I wanted to yeah. read more, and I would kind of say like if you like Jag, you know, like it's basically yeah. that. You know, it's about yeah. it's half military science fiction and half law and order science fiction yeah it's uh, it's
1: it's four books and there's a court martial in every book and yeah. like if you just want to read about courtroom drama in space <laughs> it is it is targeted directly onto me, and I, yeah. th- I know that there's a lot of people who will be like, "That sounds terrible. Everything about that is horrible." <laughs> It'll be like yeah. everything is perfect.
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to try and get through yeah. all the military science fiction books you've recommended after I get through all the Star Wars books that you've <laughs> recommended. I've got a long reading list, but yeah, uh, I- audience, hopefully so to you as well. <laughs> um, Rob, for people who want to find more of your thoughts, where can they find them?
1: Uh, not really anywhere. I've kind of, I, I, am I'm, I'm a social media hermit. I technically have a Twitter that I, I've had, I've been on Twitter for 13 years. I think the last post that I made was eight years ago. That's um, fair. so I know you
0: used to do a lot of, uh, podcasting about magic yeah, gathering. Yeah, I do. I do. That's kind I, of so I was, I, I
1: was just on, um, good luck high five recently. So okay. if you want to, if you want to go hear about new magic sets, go, go on good luck high five. I've been on the geek bracket a few times. Um, JP does a great job running a, a quiz show for geeks there. Yeah. Um, but Otherwise I'm like I get on podcasts and then otherwise I just kinda don't do a lot of stuff. Well you public.
0: keep suggesting interesting topics here, so yeah. I keep having you back. So Yeah. Well Rob, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, to our listeners. We've obviously touched touched on a lot of interesting topics that I think people might have a whole wide range of, of thoughts on. If you agree with us, if you have interesting, you know, your own kind of reactions to some of these books or your own real life interactions with the military and stuff that relate to what we've talked about, if you think Rob and I are completely talking out of our asses because neither of us have been in the military, let us know. You can um, find us on Facebook or Twitter at The Ethical Panda. You can also go to the website, TheEthicalPanda.com. And of course, you can just uh, email us at TheEthicalPanda at gmail.com. And it's all three of those words as one, The Ethical Panda. Uh at that website also you can find my other podcast that I've talked about superhero ethics but having a lot of fun doing that. Uh I'm sorry, this is superhero ethics. I've also the Star Wars Universe podcast that Rob was going to be a guest on some point in the near future. I will also say that um yeah. and as I said, I'm going to, Rob's going to give me a whole list of books. I'm going to try and get affiliate links for many of those as I possibly can and then if you're interested in buying any of those books, do it through the website. Uh you'll save a bit of money, you'll make sure your money goes to an independent bookseller. I hope uh, that the affiliate link will get. I'll make a note if it's not. And, of course, you get to help support this podcast a little way, little bit. If you're looking for other ways to support this podcast, my other podcasts, um, we have a Patreon. It's not really taken off. I've not really put much effort into it. I think I'm going to start trying to do more of that in the fall and winter. I've been bad about updating it to some extent, but I'm going to be much more... Uh, proactive about that and proactive about kind of letting people know but there are some great uh, benefits you can get from being a patreon you get ad free content for example uh at higher levels you can even suggest topics or uh get merchandise all sorts of great stuff like that but another great way to help support this podcast because it helps more people. we're open to all reviews obviously if you don't love the show you know please let us know um although, you know if you just hate the show and you think i'm too leftist or anything like that you know don't leave a one-star review just if, you, if this isn't your show, just you can listen to something else. But if you have constructive criticism, definitely give us a, a harsh review if you need to or a positive review. But especially right now, during the month of September, if you write a five-star review for this podcast or the Star Wars Universe podcast or any of the Stranded Panda Network of podcasts, all you have to do is write a five-star review and, and, and say something. Don't just say, like, I'm doing this for the contest. You know, say something about the show. You get entered into a raffle where you can win an Oculus 2 or or a Nintendo Switch uh, of your choice. Uh, and every review you write gets another entry. You can't write like three different reviews for superhero ethics, but you write a review for superhero ethics, that's one entry. Star Wars Universe, that's another. The MCU cast is a third. Panda is a fourth, etc. So write those reviews while we're still in September. Join Patreon if you want to help support. Definitely buy those books that we're talking about. And most importantly, have a good day.